This morning I'm reading from the Dhammapada. This translation is from Kesri Dhammananda, and it's verse number 174. Anda I am loko, tanu keta vipasati, sakunto jala mutowa, aposagaya gachati. Blind is this world, few are those who clearly see, as few birds escape from a net, few go to a blissful state. And there's a story about this verse, and the story goes like this. One day the Buddha gave a discourse on the impermanence of life, at Alavi. He admonished, practice meditation on death, reflect mindfully, uncertain is my life, certain is my death, certainly one day I have to face death. The Buddha also exhorted his listeners to be always mindful and to strive to perceive the true nature of life. He said, as one who is armed with a stick or spear and is prepared to meet the enemy and some other poisonous and dangerous animals, so also one who is ever mindful of death should face death mindfully. Then he will leave this world for a good destination. Many people could not grasp the essence of this discourse, but a young girl of 16 who was a weaver clearly understood the Buddha's discourse. After the sermon, the Buddha went back to the Jetuana monastery. One day when he was surveying the world, he saw this young weaver girl in his vision, and he knew that the time was right for her to attain the first stage of sainthood. So he came back to the village of Alavi to teach the Dhamma for the second time. When the girl heard that the Buddha had come again with a few hundred bhikkhus, she wanted to go and listen to his teaching. But... Her father had also asked her to wind some spools of thread, which he needed urgently. So she quickly wound the spools and took them to her father. But on the way, she stopped for a moment at the outer fringe of the audience who had come to listen to the Buddha. The Buddha knew that this young weaver would come to listen to his sermon. And he also knew that it was very important for her to listen to the Dhamma on her way to the weaving shed and not on her return. Because her karmic energy for survival was going to be soon extinguished. So when the young weaver appeared, the Buddha looked at her. And when she saw him look at her, she dropped her basket, which had the spools in it, and respectfully approached the enlightened one. And then he put four questions to her. 
where have you come from? And the girl said, I don't know. Where are you going? asked the Buddha. And the girl said, I don't know. And the Buddha asked, don't you know? And the girl said, yes, I know. Finally, the Buddha asked her, do you know? And the girl said, I don't know, Venerable Sir. Hearing her answers, the audience thought that the weaver was being very disrespectful. Then the Buddha asked her to explain what she meant by her answers. And this is what she said. Venerable Sir, since you know that I have come from my house, I take it that by your first question, you meant to ask me from what past existence have I come? So I answered, I don't know. The second question, you meant to what future existence would I be going from here? So I answered, I don't know. The third question, you meant whether I don't know that I would die one day, and I answered, yes, I do know. And the last question meant whether I know when I would die, and so I answered, I don't know. The Buddha applauded her for the explanation of her answers, and at the end of the discourse, she attained the first stage of sainthood. Then the girl continued on her way to the weaving shed. When she got there, her father was asleep on the weaver's seat, and he woke up suddenly, accidentally pulled the shuttle, and the point of the shuttle struck the girl, and she died on the spot. She was reborn in the Tusita Deva world. Her father was brokenhearted. With eyes full of tears, yet realizing the uncertainty of life, he went and requested the Buddha to admit him to the order. And not long afterwards, he attained arahantship. So you can see that life is very uncertain. But the Buddha knew that he had to give her the discourse before she went back to see her father because she didn't have much time left. But she was so astute, so she was able to listen to his questions and answer them with so much clarity. And this is why we encourage people to approach the Dhamma in any way that they can, as fast as they can, as soon as they can. Because life is uncertain, and death is certain, and we don't know how much time we have left. And it's no longer personal, because if we look around, our world is being destroyed. But do people pay attention? I heard that one of the major airlines tripled or quadrupled the number of people that are climbing aboard airplanes to go somewhere since the year that COVID started. Where is everyone going? They're going on holiday. But death has no holiday. So this is important for us to contemplate. How are we spending our lives? How do we spend our time? Do we have cause for regret?
And then if we are spending our time well and developing, cultivating the path, then we can feel a lot of joy about that. I, what would your advice be to the situation that, that we can get to with these minds of ours where there's something that we don't want to see? So you, you've mentioned various things happening in the world and even, you know, people who are trained to look at these things, some of them it's just too painful now to look at them, these things that are happening. Yeah. And so if we see ourselves wanting to distract it's easy to think, well, I, I want to try and face up to reality, I want to not distract, but the pattern of behavior and the urge to look away from that which is terrifying is so strong. So how can we consistently have the courage to turn our minds towards the truth and not be afraid of the truth of things? Well, we have to realize that our fear of the truth is the same fear that keeps us clinging to the things we think are going to save us. But we see that the result of clinging to them doesn't save us. So we're not being very mindful in a wise way. We may be mindful that that is happening, but we don't have the wisdom to turn then to that which will end the fear. And it isn't the habit that we're continuing. So we keep looking for the happiness in the wrong place. We keep going back to our old habits and not changing them because it's comforting. And at some level, we feel stronger because at least we know how to do that. But in the end, it's only by being courageous enough to die to the ego and not keep feeding it. You know, like, I have a hard time to stop feeding the chipmunk, but at least I'm training him not to eat from my hand, so he won't be trying to get into the house. But I put the food on a rock, and he has to go a little bit away from the door. And we have to find creative ways to train the mind. So if you give the mind something very delicious that it can enjoy, which won't be the deluded thoughts, but maybe some chanting, or spending time with spiritual friends and listening to a Dhamma talk is better than reading novels and watching thrillers or even documentaries just distracting the mind. There's so much information that the world is feeding us and we have access to all the knowledge we want. We can know everything about anything. Artificial intelligence will give you the answer. But when we're sick, who's going to give us an answer? When we're breathing our last breaths, what good will all that give us? The contemplation of death has to be very visceral and it need not be depressing either because what we're really contemplating is the death of the body. But our journey is much longer than that. And if we contemplate our conduct and our way of 
being in the world and our way of cultivating good intention and right thoughts, skillful thoughts, then we can just feel peace when we contemplate death because we know that we've put in causes and conditions for the journey ahead, wherever it's going to be. But if we haven't put in those causes and conditions, we would be afraid of losing the body because we're clinging to it. So delusion is reluctant to see the truth. And we have to be that sharply aware to know when the mind is biting into and swallowing delusion, eating delusion, and staying very deluded. That kind of a mind cannot lead us to freedom. Why would we expect it to? So we have to more closely watch ourselves and care for our minds and separate that which is harmful from that which is beneficial in a deeper way. What gives us true happiness and what doesn't? What leads us to be chained in the fears, habitual fears, that are consuming our well-being? And what leads us into the company of those who will support our strengths and our good qualities? Why do we spend time with people who don't treat us well? or don't respect what we're doing. One of the reasons that we try to keep the monastery or choose places for monastic residents far from the world, far from the madding crowd, because it is maddening. And if it doesn't drive you crazy, it'll make you sick. Whatever sickness goes into the mind that we, man we manage to cover up, the body doesn't cover it up. The body gets weakened, stiff, frozen, dampened, fearful. How do we hold fear? Either we vibrate, shake, or we get stiff and freeze. We get disabled in one way or another. It's a terrible thing. Fear is terrorizing. It's a self-terrorizing, self-harming action. And so how can we claim to follow the Eightfold Noble Path if we're always stabbing, self-stabbing with fear? You're cultivating fear, you're cooking the pot of fear instead of cooking the kilesas. We're just boiling them over, adding them in and we drown. But if we destroy the kilesas in the mind, and we have to do that wisely, skillfully, not carelessly, not underestimate the power of wrong thinking. It's just so powerful. We can convince ourselves of anything we ask why other people have these strange views where they go out and support leaders who rob them, 
who destroy their country. As we've seen recently in Sri Lanka. Why do people vote for those leaders? Because we're so easily led to trust the wrong way, in the wrong place. And that happens on the outside as well as on the inside. So just being much more attentive to what is serving the best in us, our physical health, our mental health, our karmic health. Karmic health means how much are we unburdening ourselves of lifetimes of karmic baggage? How well are we doing in that department? Is the bag empty, half empty, or is it full? Why? It's because we choose that which doesn't serve to empty ourselves. We empty the rubbish in the house. If we don't empty it, it gets smelly. So you want to put it somewhere where you can't smell it. But we carry it around. It's unbearable. But when we practice in these ways and we really fulfill the Eightfold Noble Path, that means that there has to be an internal emptying. Sila Samadhi Panya is about an inner sila, the sila of the mind. The sila of the mind is the most precious sila. So that's right view, right intention. Right view means the right way of seeing, not the deluded way of seeing. It's easy to say that, but what does it mean? We don't know where we came from and we don't know where we're going. But if we practice right sila, which is a purification of the mind, purification of the heart, we don't have to be afraid to drop the body because we know that our destination will be good. We can be sure of that. That's a beautiful thing. There's no terror there, no fear there. Still, when you live in a cold climate, you have to have good heating. Use conventional means to protect and support. But in terms of supporting the mind, we need exceptional gears. There's forward, and there's reverse, and there's also sideways, up and down, north, south, east, west elements, enlightenment factors, mental powers, mental prowess. And there's stopping. There are all these ways that we can support our freedom. And we need that freedom. We're not getting it in the world, but we can get it in here. That's what counts. People think that we don't do anything. What we're doing is invisible. And it can easily be misjudged. 
And it's really good to know that those judgments that people throw our way don't count. It's what feeds the ego. You want to be popular, you want to be loved, you want to be well thought of. As monastics, we have to keep that up. We want people to have faith and to trust what we're doing. So we try to dress in a suitable way, not overeat, not be too indulgent, use things modestly, be grateful, be content, but also to care for the mind, care for the heart, and be willing to die to the world. There's no fear of death for the wise, and there's no rest for the wicked.